I've already said that Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit chapter. There is more condensed discussion of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 than anywhere else in the New Testament. I believe Paul mentions the Spirit 19 times in this chapter and 15 times in the first 17 verses. So there are passages like 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, for example, that discuss the gifts of the Spirit and things like that. The book of Acts, for example. But if you're talking about density, Romans chapter 8 is where we live when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that very clearly this week. And we're going to look at this passage in context. The actual words that he says and the point he's trying to make is fairly simple, especially connected with what we've already read. But I do want to take some time this week to drill a little deeper into the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Because if you try to attempt to live as a Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit, you will fail miserably. It's not going to work. And this is part of the reason, I think, that when we try to explain to unbelievers what it is we do and what it is we believe, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them. Because if you're not going to explain the indwelling Holy Spirit, then it's going to seem impossible. It's not going to make an awful lot of sense. And it's going to be frustrating for people who try it without him. And this is not just true for us as individuals. It's true for us as a church as well. That whatever you attempt in the flesh apart from the Spirit, you're either bound to struggle or fail. Usually both. And if if we build it, it can only be us-sized, right? But if God builds it, then there's no limit to what God can do, right? So as we come into a new year, 2022, Ephesians 2.10, the Bible tells us that God has works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God's got works lined out for you to do this year. So how in the world are we going to accomplish those things? How are we, first of all, going to know what they are? How are we, second of all, going to be able to actually do it? Well, the answer is it's only possible by the Holy Spirit. Because the task is always too big for us. God only calls us to do things that are too hard for us. Have you noticed that? That when God leads us to do things, it's never like, oh yeah, God, I got this, no problem. In fact, the one time in the Old Testament Israel did that, uh, they got their butts kicked by a tiny little city called Ai. Joshua's like, oh, we don't need the whole army. Let everybody else rest and we'll go in. And the Lord goes, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how it works, my friend. But here's the thing, with God and you, You always have the majority, right? You're always on top. So I hope we learn this lesson well as we get in these verses. We're going to look at how it fits in context, and then we're going to look at some of the doctrine that we can extrapolate from this passage, and I think that'll get us hopefully real excited to launch this week of prayer and also to go into a new year. Well, let me read this whole whole section here, and and we're going to focus on just a couple of these verses, starting at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We'll pause right there for now. Well, he opens up with the word for... In verse 5, which means he's connecting to what he just said. So it's important for us to look back. The last thing he said in verse 4 was that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled by those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
For, he's explaining now, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh and so on. He's just said that the law's purpose is fulfilled by those who walk according to the Spirit. And that, that is the capital L law, the law of Moses. And he's not making the point that if you are walking in the Spirit, therefore you're going to keep all of the individual commandments of the Old Testament law. In fact, he's made it very clear that we're no longer under the law of Moses. But the requirement, meaning the purpose, the telos of the law, what God was trying to accomplish in his people or holding up as a standard is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that is the reason why the law is no longer in use for us. It's been fulfilled by the Spirit. So we need to understand what that means, right? If God's purpose is fulfilled by those who walk by the Spirit, we got to know what that means. So he sets out a contrast here between those who live according to the flesh and live according to the Spirit. But you ought to know that that word live in the ESV or walk, it has in some translations, is not in the original Greek there. There's no verb. He just says those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. So he doesn't even actually have the word are there. He just says, those according to the flesh and those according to the spirit. This is important to know because in this passage, Paul is not so much calling the people to do something as much as he is reassuring them of something that's already true about them. You have the according to the flesh people and the according to the spirit people. And he says that the mind that is set on the flesh in verse 7 and in verse 6. But this is another thing to note, that it's not the mind that is set on. The word there is phronema, and it actually pretty well could be translated mindset. He says, those who are of the flesh mind, phroneo, the things of the flesh, because they have a fleshly phronema. These words are related. A fleshly mindset. And the spirit has its own. And so you've got to see the translations in English sometimes have to fill in the gaps here. But we've got to make sure that we don't uh, let the way that we make the sentence flow in English change the way that we interpret it. He's describing two different sets of people. He's talking about settled perspectives here. Now let's look at this first one. The phronema, which comes from the word phroneo, which means to think or to mind something. So mindset, you could say, outlook of the flesh. The mind that is set on is how the ESV translates it. The first one is that of the flesh. We've talked about this before. The flesh refers to your body. You have a body. You have flesh. The Latin word is carne. It's where we get words like carnal or incarnation from. If you speak Spanish, you know carne means meat. This is just talking about the physical body, right? In the flesh. But we know that there's, there's more than that. That the flesh is corrupted by sin. And so the Bible, especially Romans 7, identifies the flesh as the source of sinful corruption. That it comes from your body because your spirit's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So the fleshly mindset, phronema, are the things that are natural and corrupted by sin. You might call this the way that everyone else thinks. This is the fleshly out, outlook, the fleshly mindset, thinking according to desire. The things that determine what you're going to do or how you're going to believe are based in your desires. Isn't it amazing how many of our moral statements today essentially boil down to, but I really wanted to? You know, we say things like, well, that's just, that, that's my identity. I identify as this, meaning I really want to do this. It's funny, we do that for some things, but not, but not others, right? We'll do that for sexual things. 
well, but I have this orientation. I have this desire. I have the, so therefore I have to act on them. Hey, there are plenty of desires that you say no to, you know, but, there, but for some reason we think that our desire should be determinative of what we do and what is right. Or nature. I mean, and people are now trying to establish moral doctrines. That's essentially what they are, right? Doctrines according to nature. You know, we study monkeys or we study rats or we study the DNA or the neural system. And therefore we find out that, oh, this is just the way nature has made us to be. Men are supposed to have lots of different women because that's how nature is. That's how the species is perpetuated, right? We, we do things like that. Nature or even culture will drive the fleshly mindset. This is the way everybody else thinks. And you know something is cultural when you, you oppose it from the Bible and somebody just goes, oh, come on. Well, why do we do that? Well, come on. Everybody knows that. Why, not everybody knows that. I could go over to, you know, Tasmania, and they probably don't know that. So why do we think that it's so normal? Well, that's just the way we think. Yeah, it's cultural. That's what the mindset of the flesh is. Our desires, nature, culture. And he says that the mind, the phronema of the flesh is death. Ephesians 4.17, Paul tells us to no longer think as the Gentiles think in the futility of their minds. The uselessness of this way of thinking. It leads to death. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, the natural man. That's another way of talking about flesh, right? Just, just like we were born like everybody else. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You ever try to explain some really basic Bible to somebody and they just can't get it? And you go, how do you not understand this? It's not that hard to grasp. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because these are spiritual things. And this is why those that even are, are Bible scholars and study it for a living, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, you hear them talk about the Bible and it's like, have you even read it? It's like, yeah, they have, but they're not receiving the illumination of the Holy Spirit. He says those in the flesh are hostile to God and cannot please God. And, and this is important to know too, because the idea that, well, well-meaning, normal people. It's not like you're evil. Not being a Christian doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you an enemy of God. Well, yes, it does. And the scale of how bad or good you are isn't really relevant here. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be an axe murderer to be an enemy of God. You can be somebody who believes that all roads lead to heaven and it doesn't matter what you believe. That belief is much more deadly than anything else because you're telling people to neglect and ignore the one thing that can save them, who is Jesus Christ. They cannot please God. They cannot achieve the requirement, singular, purpose, telos of the law. Because the law of God is, number one, incomprehensible in your flesh. Because it's telling you to deny your flesh. It's telling you to do things with a spiritual mindset. Act as if God is real. Act as if heaven and hell are real. Act as if you must be forgiven. But if you can only think according to the flesh, that won't make any sense to you. But secondly, it's impossible in the flesh. We, we spent all Romans chapter 7 talking about you can't keep the law, any law. Romans chapter 2 tells us even if it's not Moses' law, fine, try some other law and try to keep that one. Can you keep that? No, you can't. It's impossible in the flesh. And there are so many people that want to say, well, I, the Bible tells us that I'm supposed to love my enemies. I can't do that. Therefore, it's not fair for God to ask that of me. But if you're walking in the flesh, of course not. This is why Christianity is not just a moral standard, as, as 
you know, the world sees value in the, in the church for that reason, but then they see the things that we are actually asked to do, and they want to try and water it down. It's like, well, none of this is possible if you're walking according to the franema mindset of the flesh. On the other hand, you have this second mindset, the second franima, and there's all kinds of parallel language that he uses here, that this is that, and this is this. This is the mindset of the Spirit, who, of course, this is the Holy Spirit of God. This is the third person of the Godhead, the personal helper, advocate that Jesus said the Lord would send. And I like this because he's not so much talking like he is in Galatians 5 about the things you have to do. Right now he's talking about what the Spirit does to you when you are saved. You gain a new outlook, mindset on life. A fresh perspective. You have a new status that the Spirit regenerates you. We talked about this. When you're saved, it's like when the Spirit comes in and defibrillates your heart. And it starts to beat again. Your soul comes alive. And everything looks different. There, we were listening to this old Hillsong song this morning called Now That You're Near. And the chorus goes, now that you're near, everything is different. That's true when you get saved, isn't it? Everything just starts to look different. And sometimes it happens all at once and sometimes it takes time. But your whole perspective on life changes. This is to think with heavenly eyes that you evaluate your life and the life around you and the news and the culture and the schools and everything else through heaven's perspective. How might God think about this? You know, the average person doesn't do that. You know, this is why... When you, when you watch like evangelism videos or when people are on the street talking to people about God, very often people just don't know what to say because like, I didn't really think about it that way. I, if God is real, what does he think about your life? Uh, and then people start to panic because that might be the first time they've ever thought that way. But we look with heavenly eyes. We know the truth of sin and salvation. We know that doing the wrong thing is not just the wrong thing, but it's the cancer of the world. It's the thing that's going to send us to hell. But we also know the truth of salvation and Jesus Christ and grace. And you're filtering everything through that. And this is something that drives our non-believing relatives crazy. So all you ever want to talk about is Jesus. It's like, listen, if your soul was saved from hell, would you ever talk about anything else? This mindset, he calls it life and peace. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So this isn't just eternal life, although we're going to talk about that today. This is abundant life. That when you start following Jesus, his commandments are for your good. And it's peace because the weight of guilt and the, the existential dread of the world is gone. It's all been resolved in Jesus Christ. We sing that song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and it says, Come free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Tyranny is a good word to describe sin, isn't it? You feel like you're, you're under somebody else's evil power, because you are in many ways, although you're also under your own folly and failures. But when you become a believer and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you, it changes the way you view everything. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 it says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, there's something people will say, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I have two things to say to that. Number one, let's, let's concede the point. There are some folks that don't want to do anything. 
So they talk about heaven and Jesus an awful lot. Hey, can you help me move? No, but I'll pray for you. You know, I say, hey, I really need some help. I need, I need some money to make, pay my bills. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that the Lord does that for you. And, you know, the Bible says God provides all of our needs. It's like, okay, yeah, you're using Jesus as a cop-out to not do what Jesus told you to do, okay? That's true. However, so heavenly-minded you're no earthly good, brothers and sisters. The more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. The more you have your eyes fixed on heaven and what is coming, the more you'll be able to properly evaluate the world and provide what is needed in the moment. You know, a doctor, a surgeon has to be able to have a little bit of detachment from the situation to know what needs to be done in the moment. You know, and you might come across somebody who is injured and there might be a lot of blood coming from one part of the body and that's what everybody's freaking out about, but the doctor can come in and know, all right, that's going to be okay, but it's actually this injury over here that needs the attention now. That's what it is to be a believer. You know, this might be a problem, but let me tell you what the real problem is. Yeah, poverty is an issue, but you know what is a bigger issue? Those who are poor or who do not see themselves as poor in spirit and do not realize that they're spiritually destitute. That's that heavenly mindset that you get. Those who think this way, the Bible says here, will keep the law. These are those who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Not its commandments, as I said, per se. And there are those that have taken this passage to say, therefore, everything that Paul said about the law no longer applying to you has been undone in chapter 8. No, no, no. He's saying whatever God was trying to accomplish through his law, he is now accomplishing by the Holy Spirit coming and filling us up which is exactly what he prophesied in Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, he said, when the new covenant comes, I'm going to put my law within you. I'm going to put my spirit within you. He will come to dwell within you and give you a new heart. He'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And Paul says, that was always what the old covenant was looking towards. And now that this has happened, we can look back and celebrate what the old covenant was, but also celebrate that we don't have to try to keep all these rules anymore because we have something bigger and better in the spirit of Jesus. So here he's laying out the difference between the world and the church. And you see that the difference between us is not just a matter of culture, you know, that we don't go see bad movies or we don't say certain words or that we dress differently, but that there is a very real spiritual difference, a mindset difference That only the gospel can bridge that gap. This is why we get called things like Jesus freaks, you know, and and crazy evangelical Christians. And don't you love people use the word evangelical like a slur sometimes? So evangelical means of the gospel. So, you know, I'm down with that if you want to call me that. And so what I want you to see in this passage as we move on here is the appeal of this verse is, is not do better. You know, there is other places where Paul will say, Yeah, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. There's a real war going on. But what he's saying here is he's giving us reassurance that if you put your faith in Christ, this is who you are. And you can take a breath and say, thank you, Lord. As we look in verse 9, what does he say? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I love that because he gives these two distinctions. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Those who are of the spirit will keep the righteous requirement of the law. And you go, oh no, which one am I? He comes in verse 9 and says, if you belong to Christ, you're of the spirit. And this is the key verse that I want to look at today. 
that Paul affirms us as being of the Spirit. And he says we are not in the flesh. Of course you still have a body, right? And of course you're still going to struggle with temptation to sin. But he's speaking in context here. Can you see the difference? He's just talking about these two different phronemas, right? These two different mindsets. So when he says you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, he's very clearly saying you're not of this one, you're of this one. So, you know, you, you don't rip verses out of context to make theological points. You've got to read them in the paragraphs that they're given. Your soul's outlook is no longer according to the flesh, but the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says we regard nothing according to the flesh now. We don't think about anything or anybody like everybody else, but only with that heavenly perspective God gives us. And he says this is true of us if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then that is your mindset. And this is true of every Christian. I don't know if I had the Spirit of God dwelling in me. Well, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Because you can't be one who belongs to Christ if you are not indwelt by the Spirit of God. So maybe that's a pretty cool thing for some of you to realize. Well, I know I'm a Christian. I've been saved. I believe in Jesus. Then you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. Isn't that pretty radical? I think that's pretty radical. The Holy Spirit of God. I actually just read from my devotions yesterday in 2 Samuel where they dedicated the temple. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant in and they put it in the Holy of Holies. And as they came out, the, the presence of God descended on the temple in a big, thick cloud so that the priests couldn't even do the sacrifices anymore. The presence of God was there. And now, the Bible says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Let me say that to you. Do you not know that you, put your name in there, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So how did that happen? Well, we know. He says, if you belong to him, we know how to do that. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's through the grace of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to salvation, who regenerates our spirit, and then comes to dwell within us at that moment. He's constantly working around us. Jesus promised in John 14, 17, he says, if you believe in me, I will send another helper to be with you always. He says, that's the spirit of life whom the world cannot receive. He says, he is with you and will be in you. And now that Jesus has died and risen from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit, he is in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, just as Ezekiel 36 promised. He promised that someday I'll put my own spirit within you. And Jesus said in John 14, that day is coming. It's going to be very, very soon. And then Jesus died and rose again. And now everybody who believes in Jesus has the spirit come and dwell in him. Therefore, you are no longer of the flesh mindset because the Holy Spirit has come and transformed you. So take a minute and think about that. That's true of you, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Working on your heart. Giving you gifts of the Holy Spirit. Speaking to you God's word. Afflicting your conscience every now and then. Didn't you find that after you got saved, the things that you used to do with no problem, you just can't do it anymore because you feel too badly about it? That is the new change. Jesus said in John 7.38 that 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke of the Spirit who was to come. And the Spirit has come. So this is the the important thing to know. Well, am I of the flesh or am I of the Spirit? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed on the Lord? Are you saved? Are you a Christian? Then the Spirit of God dwells in you because you couldn't become a Christian apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not just a commitment like I signed my paper and now I'm a Christian. There you go. See, it's on my Facebook page. It says Christ follower. So you know know I'm a Christian. No, it is a spiritual transformation that happens. And y'all have seen this happen either in yourself or in other people. Why do grown men freak out when it's time to come down the aisle and pray to receive Jesus Christ? That that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? My my great-grandfather was a hard man, hard man, had trouble with, with alcoholism and anger and all this stuff, and everybody else in his family got saved around him. <laughs> Finally, he goes to church, and the preacher was preaching the gospel, and if anyone wants to be saved, come forward right now. My grandpa Leonard got out of that chair and sprinted down the aisle, full all-out sprint, and threw himself at the altar and started to pray. And my grandfather, who was the one that invited him was kind of embarrassed because this is his church and here's my dad running all over the place, you know. And he said, Dad, why did you run? He says, I was afraid I was going to die before I got down to that altar and had time to pray. It's like, what, what happens in moments like that? This is a man that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Don't bring that religion in this house. Watch everybody else get saved. Fine, I'll finally go to church. And then in that moment, he's so scared and ready to do it, he's sprinting in, in, in a good way, shaming himself in front of all these people. Because there was a spiritual transformation happening in his heart. This is why people will weep and cry. I've had people come forward to receive the Lord, and they're fine. Oh, yeah, I, I just got to get my life right. You know, I, I got to come back to Jesus. I know this is what I need to do. Okay, let's pray. Why don't you pray first? And they start to pray, and then they immediately break down weeping. Why? Because something's changing in them. There's a new birth that's happening. They're being born again by the Spirit. So know that that is what is true of you, Christian. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This presence of God is not dwelling in Jerusalem now, but within you. I think that's, that's pretty cool, don't you? Anybody else excited about that? Might be a little frightening to consider some of the stuff you've been doing this last week to know that you're also the temple of the Holy Spirit. But right now we're just rejoicing. But let's go beyond this passage just a little bit. Because there is more to the work of the Spirit than just that initial moment of salvation. And some of the things I'm about to explain are understood differently by various traditions. But I think in most cases we land at about the same point. So let me explain this to you from the scriptures and and we'll get to the application in a second. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at salvation, but there is also something that the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In John 20:22, after Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples have believed on him. He breathed on them. Why he breathed on them? We usually don't like it when somebody breathes on us. Well, the word for breath in Greek is pneuma, and it's actually the same word that is translated spirit or wind, right? He breathed on them and he said in John 20, 22, receive the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. They had believed on the Lord Jesus. But then in Acts 1, right before his ascension, Jesus said, don't start the Great Commission yet. You say, why? (laughs) 
Why would we not start right away? Because he said in Acts 1 verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He says, you, you have received my salvation, but I've got something else for you. And it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you all know the story. On Pentecost, the church was praying for 10 days. And the building began to shake and a mighty rushing wind blew through the house and tongues of fire appeared over their heads and they began to speak in other languages they had not learned and scared Peter, denying Peter, gets out there and preaches a gospel message and 3,000 people get saved on day one. Instant megachurch. That's what God gave the church that day. This is, Peter said, in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. So Ezekiel 36 prophesied the indwelling Holy Spirit. But Joel chapter 2, the Lord said, In those last days I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And he says they will prophesy. They will speak with other tongues. They will dream dreams. They will have visions. I'm not just going to pour out the indwelling, saving Spirit in my people. I'm going to pour out the prophetic miraculous power of the Spirit on all my people. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. And this became the pattern in the book of Acts, that people would be saved and they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, Philip brought the gospel to Samaria. They believed on the Lord Jesus and they were baptized. But then they called for the apostles to come because it said the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them yet. And they came and laid hands on them, and you had a second Pentecost out in Samaria. Same thing all over again. In Acts chapter 9, Paul believed on the Lord Jesus. What do you want me to do, Lord? And then a few days later, Ananias comes and he says, I am here to pray for you that you might receive your sight and be baptized. No, that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul was baptized. Don't mistake me here. But you can see that this was an important part of the process. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter was preaching to the house of Cornelius, all of these Gentiles. And while he's still preaching, before he got to every head bowed and every eye closed, before he gave an altar call, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And they all began to prophesy and speak in tongues before he finished. And he turned to his buddies and says, well, I guess they better be baptized, huh? Remarkable thing. And if the Lord hadn't have done it that way, they probably would have said, all right, now first thing, y'all got to be circumcised and become Jews, then you can be saved. But God goes, nope, I'm going to take care of this a different way. In Acts chapter 19, Paul finds some who were familiar with John the Baptist, and they say, oh yeah, we, we're, you know, we're down with that, we've been baptized, and you know, we believe in all that. And Paul goes, well, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they go, what's a Holy Spirit? And he says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You haven't been filled with the Spirit. Well, what was your baptism like? Because they hadn't been filled with the Spirit, Paul questioned their initial salvation. What, what was it? And then it turns out, well, they, they knew that John the Baptist had prophesied the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't know that Messiah had come and died and risen again. So Paul prayed to them to receive the Lord. They were baptized, and then he laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and there was another Pentecost-type story. Salvation is by belief in Jesus Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling with him. However, the Holy Spirit desires to, to give us an experience of his power and his presence. I love the song that we sing from Brian and Katie Torwalt where it says, Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness. We know the Holy Spirit's there. We're not trying to summon him like we're doing a seance or something like that. We just want to know that he's there. 
We want to be aware of his presence. We want to experience what he has for us. He has spiritual gifts to give us. He wants to empower us for ministry. He wants to enable us to be holy and more. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They wanted people to be saved, but they also wanted them to encounter and experience the prophetic power of the Spirit in their life. And I use that term prophetic very broadly here. But not only that, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a repeatable thing. This is where the terminology gets a little you know, divisive. People, well, no, you can be baptized in the Spirit once and then you're filled multiple times. Whatever, okay? In Acts chapter 4, the same people who had been in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 were filled with the Holy Spirit again. And every time the, the apostles were going to do something miraculous in the book of Acts, it says, and Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Coming upon them. So, well, that's not anything that we ought to be concerned with. Well, Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 11.13, Jesus said, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, I don't think anybody gave coal to their children this Christmas. Well, then how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now those want to say things like, well, you, you are saved as you're going to be. You're not going to be extra saved. Yes, I know that. Anybody that tells you you've got to have some sort of subsequent thing or speak in tongues or whatever to be saved is wrong. They are biblically wrong. For salvation is by grace through faith alone. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. However, however you want to understand this process, it is clear from the book of Acts Fresh, dynamic encounters with the Holy Spirit are the New Testament normal. That when God is going to do something with somebody, He fills them with His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them afresh. Consider it this way, that when you believe you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, the flame is lit on the altar. We'll use that illustration, okay? And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like that fire just blazes up and the smoke of the, of the fire fills the temple and the Spirit is just using you and empowering you and doing incredible things through you. So to be full of the Holy Spirit means to be in a relationship with God that will include moments of spiritual immersion. That's what baptism means, right? To be immersed, to go under something. So many want to warn against this and, and don't, you know, don't pray for the Holy Spirit. You might accidentally get a demon. What? Does that, what? Does, well, I, I prayed to the Lord and it turns out that, you know, Satan accidentally grabbed it. I, I had the wrong number. <laughs> don't miss out on your birthright, believer. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. It means that that fire can have water poured on it. Is the Holy Spirit going to depart from you and leave you? Well, no, not if you're saved, but you can be missing out on what God has for you. So if you have believed on the Lord, but you've not received the baptism of the Spirit, you need to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to be praying for that tonight at our prayer meeting, for the Spirit to come upon us. And sometimes it is a radical, incredible emotional experience, and sometimes it's just not. But you go home, and all of a sudden you find you have the strength to accomplish the things that you couldn't do the day before. But other times it's, Miraculous gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying like the book of Acts. Other times it's an overwhelming sense of joy and love that the Lord gives you. Other times it's just a renewed fire to get out there and share the gospel with somebody. The Lord has given me great faith in moments of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, 
verse 9 is telling us that we have this new spiritual outlook. And if that is the case, we need to be having regular communion with the Lord who dwells in us. Well, let's look at verses 10 and 11 coming to the end now. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul acknowledges that the body is dead because of sin. This is the important thing to note. Paul acknowledges, yes, you are in a dead, sinful body, and you're going to struggle against temptation. You know, the idea that you're going to be perfected and you're never going to be tempted again, that's simply not biblical. But that the Spirit makes us alive in our souls. And that gives us the hope that we see here in verse 11, that we will one day undergo resurrection as Jesus did. What has happened with your soul and being spiritually born again, where now the Spirit is alive, is also going to happen to your physical body on that final day. That your mortal body will be regenerated and glorified. And then no longer will you even struggle with sinful flesh. But it will all be holy by the Spirit of God. And do you love the Trinitarian nature of this passage? He says the Christ is in us. And he also says the Spirit is in us. He calls him God's Spirit. He calls him Christ's Spirit. He says that the Spirit raised Christ. He says that the Father raised Christ. And he said, well, wait a minute. This is all very confusing. Well, not if you believe in the Trinity. It's not. If you believe that there is mutual indwelling between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if you believe that the Spirit of Jesus is also the Spirit of the Father, if you believe that what the Father does, it's also what the Spirit does in their unity, but that what Christ does is distinct from the Spirit in their distinctions, that's the Trinity. So you never see that word in the New Testament, but all the raw materials are there. So you have a renewed Spirit which fulfills the law, but you have a carnal body that cannot. But one day, the spirit who saved your soul is going to save your body too. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? You're not going to spend forever in heaven floating around like a ghost. You're going to be resurrected anew in your body, but it will be glorified. And we all say, come Lord Jesus. So again, if you try to preach Christianity apart from Christ and the spirit, it's not going to work. We are a temple of the living God, individually and collectively. The Bible refers to us as a church, as a temple being built together, and that we're all stones being put together in that process. This is why your life is of enormous consequence, brother or sister. You're not just existing and then one day you might exist later on in heaven. No, your life has a purpose and has meaning because you're not just flesh anymore. You are spiritually alive and so this year and years after, there are works that God is going to give you to do that are going to be impossible for you if you do them apart from God's Holy Spirit. But because the Spirit is here and is with us, those things will be accomplished. That's why in Zechariah 4, the Lord gave Zechariah a vision of the, of the lampstand being fed constantly by the olive trees. He said, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. And before you who are full of the Spirit, that mountain will become a plain. So that mountain you look at, you've got to fight. I think I could climb it. God goes, how about I turn it into a plain? How about I flatten it for you? Not by might, not by power, not by money, not by effort, not by skill, not by organization, not by strength, not by numbers, but by the Holy Spirit. 
Regardless of how hopeless things look, we have the Spirit's presence and we need the Spirit's power. You must be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. How might the world look different if we look at it with a spiritual mindset? What could God change? How might this city look different if we look at it through God's eyes? What could God accomplish if we look at it His way? Or your family? Or this church? I believe that God is raising up a great victory in this place. In this place, in this church, and in this town. And that in this coming year and in the years following, when we get into that new sanctuary and we're laughing about this tiny little room that we used to meet in, we're going to see conversions. People are going to be saved. We're going to see more miracles. We've already seen a few. We're going to see more. We're going to see the Lord give revelation, dreams, and visions to people. We're going to see people called into ministry here. We're going to see people blessed and provided for. Mental health is going to be restored. We're going to see families reconciled and prodigals come home here. We can't do any of that. I can't do any of that. If you're expecting me to do it, I'll just save you the disappointment and say, go home. But by the Holy Spirit of God, there's nothing that is too big for the Lord. So when we humble ourselves and pray, when we consecrate ourselves, like we talked about on Wednesday, when we step out in faith, that's when the Lord will meet us in the Spirit. So if God is on our side in 2022, is there anybody that can stand in our way?